0: okay so a witch and a historian walk into a library no it's not a joke stick with me from the Folger Shakespeare Library this is Shakespeare Unlimited I'm Michael Whitmore the Folger's director Actually, what I said a second ago is the plot point that kicks off a runaway series of best-selling novels that are now getting their world premiere as a TV series. The All Souls trilogy follows Diana Bishop, a historian at Yale who has been hiding the fact that she is actually a witch. The All Souls trilogy was written by an old friend of the Folger, Deborah Harkness, who's been doing research here since her days as a graduate student. See, Deborah Harkness is not your standard historical fantasy novelist. She's a PhD teaching professor of history at the University of Southern California, who, in addition to her trilogy, has also written two books on science and magic in the early modern period. And it's her understanding of real people, like John Dee, Elizabeth I's astrologer, that makes her novels so rich. We had Deb into the studio recently to talk about all of this for a podcast we call Excellent Witchcraft. Deborah Harkness is interviewed by Barbara Bogave.
1: Now, you start uh, your book with this incident that actually happened to you in real life, I've read. Uh, And in, in the book, at least, a witch, your protagonist, Diana Bishop, she finds a lost manuscript at the Bodleian Library, and this manuscript magically opens, and it's readable but only for her, and it promises to hold the key to just the origin of all magical creatures and kind of all of life, it seems sounds like. Uh, anyway, this discovery attracts the attention of other supernatural creatures uh, who've been searching for it and you're off and running with the book. So, of course, your story, I assume, doesn't involve actual magic uh, or anything supernatural. But why don't you tell us what happened when you discovered this Book of Soiga? The Book of Soiga.
2: Basically, what happened, of course, is is that it took a lot longer than it did in the book. I, when I wrote my first draft of the Discovery of Witches, it took her forever to find the forbidden book. I think like 120 pages.
1: Oh, and then your editor said, "No, no, no." Let's start with her actually
2: just finding the book. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is that, of course, for anybody who uses a library, whether it's the Folger or any other library, you know that nothing is ever quite that instantaneous. I had been there for the summer. It was just the summer after I had filed my PhD, which was the books of and library of John Dee, especially his magical books. And I went to the Bodleian for the summer and I was looking for a book by Al Kindy that Dee had probably owned. And I remember flipping through the catalog and I got to the ALs and in the upper corner, it said Alderaya Sive Soiga, which is Alderaya or Soiga. I thought,
1: no. So you recognize this? Yeah. Because this it, was this was a long-lost book. It was a
2: long-lost book, considered by D scholars to be sort of like the missing link. So in that way, it's very like the book that Diana finds. I called this book up thinking, I've just done my whole dissertation research. I would have found it by now. But I put in my call slip. Up came the book. I opened it up. I thought, oh, my God, it's the book. You recognized it right away? Right away. There were signs that John it had passed through John D's hands. What was it? Magical squares, magical formula. And I I wrote a note to one of the the Keeper of Rare books, and I said, I think I found the book of Soyga. Could you look at this manuscript? It's in the hold. Went home, made dinner, went back the next day. And when I walked in, the gentleman standing behind the call desk said, the Keeper would like to see you. And when he said the keeper would would like to see you, I felt like I'd finally arrived at the library for the first time. I'd worked there for for three, four years.
1: It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. The it, really, it,
2: it really The keeper would like to see you. And the keeper, Julian Roberts was an absolutely lovely man. and he he said, "You've found something that we've been looking for for a long time." And then he had brought from All Souls College the other gentleman who'd done the library catalog Andrew Watson. And I, I was sort of slightly notorious at that point because I everybody knew I was working on John Dee's Angels. And uh, Andrew Watson came up to me. He said, "Ah, you're the Angel Lady." <laughs> so that was I, from that moment I was catapulted into you into in. this, this strange circumstance of having found something that these two gentlemen. Had been looking for it. It was literally hiding in plain sight.
1: Okay, I have a couple questions about this, but okay. first I want to back up. So, in the book, when Diana, this protagonist of yours, uh, first touches this manuscript, um, she gets a shock and a tingle goes up her arm, and her palms, you know, start to vibrate, and she describes this strange smell that comes off of it. So, did any of that register? All of it, with but the you? smell. Really? Yeah. All
2: because I think as a scholar, if you find something that everyone's been looking for and suddenly in the most prosaic way possible, it's somehow in your hands, there is this very bizarre sense of a magical event having happened. And like and the hairs on the back, the of, your neck, the back or, of your neck. The hair on the back of your neck. I mean, there was there was the book of Swaygat. This was the answer to all our prayers. It turned out not to be, but it was literally like I had the sense that I had just found a missing treasure, like a um, a magical box. I was going to open this book, and every unresolved question I had was going to be answered. And it was just sort of an amazing journey. But the the sort of the thrill and magic of discovery. And the idea that the miraculous could be hiding right under your nose in plain sight, these were the things I drew from
1: that. Even without all of that, when you handle these old, old, old manuscripts, which you're doing all the time, so maybe it becomes commonplace, I, the, the limited experience I have with it in the Folger, in fact, it does give you this a, a kind of shiver, to think, who else has touched this? There's
2: nothing like it. I remember I called a manuscript up. I was a junior in college. I was at the British Library, called up a manuscript, had no you know, no idea what I was doing, turned the page. There was Queen Elizabeth I's signature on the bottom of a page. And I had to actually get up and leave the desk because the feeling of having something in your hands that connects you so directly to a person. And I think this is one of the things that Manuscripts really provide for us. I, I, I worry about what will happen given how little paper we preserve. But right now, I'm teaching a course on an introduction to historical methods at USC, and I've been buying documents on eBay manuscripts. My first class, I just tipped a box, two, I bought a box that it was described as 200 Victorian pieces of paper. I just tipped the whole box onto a table and I said to them, all right, we're historians. What? Are, how are we going to come to terms with these 200 things? And I could see it happen to my students.
1: That they have this talismanic they, effect, yeah, the they, actual they would, touching something. Yeah, yeah. they would
2: pick it up and the paper feels different. The handwriting looks different. It smells different. They found old leaves. They found little tiny rings made of hair um, that were mourning jewelry. I mean, it was just this kind of material object thing that I think... Maybe historians do get a little bit immune to it, but I'm finding a resurrection of that sense of discovery because of the fiction and now
1: because of my teaching. Well, getting back to the book, uh, the book that your protagonist finds, Diana, it is based on a different, but a real book as well, right? Ashmole 782, or 782, I don't know how you say it, is an actual long-lost manuscript. It is. So when I started
2: working on this, I was not really sure what I was doing. I think I probably thought I was writing an op-ed piece. And so I just kind of kept saying, well, imagine this, imagine that. Imagine you really were a witch. Would you be happy to be a witch, historically speaking? No. No. would you, what say you find a lost book. Oh, I remember that lost book that I never found. You know, I found the book of so- Soiga. Ashmole 782 is still missing. So I thought, okay, say you found Ashmole 782, what would be in it? Why might it have disappeared? I just kept setting up these sort of almost like historical
1: research questions as if my character was a real person right right but you did but actually all this this that whole experience started a long time ago that you found the book and you didn't do all this until no. what you were on vacation in 2008 in Mexico right? right
2: I found the book of soyga in 1994 I did not start imagining what it would be like to be a real witch in a world that was kind of already starting to really prickle and be anxious about people who were different until 2000. And eight, so that's a in long an airport. Bur- in an airport <laughs> bookstore in Mexico.
1: So again, you know, the, what What happened there?
2: It, there was a whole wall of books about supernatural creatures, all of whom were gorgeous.
1: Oh, not just Twilight. Which? Oh had, no, it oh. was like
2: a whole display, and it was you know books about elves and shapeshifters and werewolf lovers, and everybody was clearly having a really really interesting romantic life. And I looked at this wall. And I thought, wow, I've been in the library for a long time. Where have all these creatures come from? Because it looked to me like an early modern bookshelf at the Folger had had been weirdly put through a time machine and come out in, like, modern clothes. Because <laughs> in the 16th and 17th century, people really wanted to read about all these beings. And I thought, why are we still fascinated? And and that was what got me thinking about, like, really? Is this what your life would look like? You'd be incredibly well-built and beautiful and have a girlfriend and everything. If you were a vampire. If you were a
1: vampire. Well, you know, we had uh, Stephanie Myers had written the Twilight books. They'd already come out in 2008. So what made you think? I think think the last one was out. Right. I don't have children, so I hadn't read them. So you still had all these questions about vampires. I had all
2: these questions. and, And I literally thought, what has happened? And my niece, who was in her teens, said... What do you mean? Of <laughs> Vampires. You they're, know, they're so I want a in vampire, right now. Haven't you read Twilight? I was like, what's that? <laughs> so literally, it. I'd spent the la- best part of the last three years in Elizabethan London w- working on a book of history, which is shorthand for you don't read fiction, you don't go to the movies. And if you don't have children, you're completely clueless.
1: Well, you do have a lot of fun with the, these kinds of questions, though, with your main character, um, Matthew, yeah. uh, main vi- vampire, uh, Matthew. Diana finds herself falling in love with this with this guy. And uh, Diana has been a non-magic practicing witch. Uh, it, it turns out she doesn't know anything about being a witch or vampire she didn't want it she rejected this part of her heritage her family business good historian Um, right you would reject that part of your history i
2: mean if in fact you were a good historian you think there is no future in this
1: as you did because you have an ancestor from salem right who was accused of being a witch
2: and executed for it but i did not know that when i started writing the books i've only discovered that in the last few years
1: Oh, that's crazy. That's very crazy. And you studied this material and magic.
2: And my own genealogy, but it was down a little avenue of a family tree that I had never been down. So you are Diana. I mean, in some I, ways. I guess. And, you know, it's so funny. I'm all of them, but certainly I, there's It, it is a, that has been one of the weirdest things, actually. I, I was absolutely adamant. I was like, I'm not descended from witches. I don't get that. I don't understand. Whatever. That's all fiction. And then two years ago, it turned out not to be fiction. So I don't know what you do. You know. So these are the kinds of things that, again, if we were in the early modern period, astrologers, physicians, they'd have a field day with that.
1: Right. They would read a lot into
2: they that. They would read a yeah. whole lot into that in terms of the occult or hidden properties at work in the world that would somehow have brought this to pass even though I didn't know.
1: Well, this is funny because I was about to ask you, uh, the fun that you have with this is that you set it up as a romance where Diana and Matthew are having this kind of get-to-know conversation <laughs> over wine, and she's doesn't know anything about vampires, so she's just asking all these really practical uh, vampire questions like, do you eat? What do you eat? And, and you walk around in broad daylight, no problem. So why did people think that you couldn't and would vaporize in the sun and that you sleep in coffins all day? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a hilarious conversation they have. Um, and it made me wonder what answers did you unearth for why people did believe these things? or And especially in Shakespeare's day, what they believed uh, about vampires, why they believed it. Shakespeare wouldn't have recognized the word vampire. Right, he was all about demons and He would have Elizabethan demons England and about witches. demons and witches. Yeah. And what
2: so one of the things that was fun for me was sort of charting the rise and fall of these mythological creatures over time. They're very prominent then they're not prominent. Witches are kind of an interesting slow steady interest and then they spike in the early modern period
1: and they were being persecuted during And that's w- during be, Shakespeare's
2: right, time. Yeah. Right. As a scholar, what I've always been interested in is, is, you know, why would someone in Shakespeare's time have gone to an occult explanation for something? It it was just that they believed there was more going on in the world than they could see with their naked eye. We've got radio waves, electricity, x-rays, MRIs. The early modern person had angels, demons, fairies. They were just technologies. For uncovering what was hidden, so it's a the very similar sort of human impulse. They just had a totally different worldview, which was that the the visible and the invisible worlds were right adjacent to each other, and occasionally
1: you got to like see through the veil that separated them. And they and they were very um, specific about, especially in uh, Shakespeare's time, about what was a witch's purview and what was a magician's purview. I mean, they're... Uh, which is highly, highly gendered. Highly gendered, right. And mag- and witches dealt in herbs, for which Witches for de-
2: dealt in herbs. Um, recipes. Stuff, recipes. It's akin to cooking. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and also akin to medicine. Because the lines that separate a recipe for a cake and a recipe for a magical biscuit are very close. And if you think about a witch's cauldron, actually, the idea that a woman could take a very few ingredients and tending that pot, feed a family of eight for an entire week, there's something a little magical in that. So it's not surprising to see this witch's cauldron as one of the iconic symbols.
1: I'm thinking of the grimoire, which is uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Folger has one, it's a book. Um, and it's a, it's kind of this fascinating mix of invocations and maledictions and, and recipes for fairy potions. Um, we did a podcast on it with Teller, of yeah. Penn and Teller. But it, it made me think that in your book... I picked up on all these snippets of alchemy and spellmaking, and they're some of my favorite passages because you you describe the instructions as like some unholy combination of joy of cooking and a poisoner's notebook. Uh, Take your pot of mercury and seethe it over a flame for three hours, and when it's joined with the philosophical child, take it and let it putrefy until the black crow carries it away to its death.
2: I know. Well, did you to the... read that somewhere? I mean, yeah, where I, did that come yes, from? Yes, it
1: was it was sort of stuck together from a whole
2: lot of different alchemical texts. I, it's not one text, it's sort of all of them. And I was one of the things that I really love to do in the novels is to be able to try to, to describe to someone who's maybe never seen a grimoire the confounding stuff that's in it, which as you say is like here is a prayer to the angel Gabriel. Here's how to summon an evil spirit. Here's how to stop a toothache. It's a real mixed bag. It's a really mixed bag. And it's it's hard for us because I think in some ways we are splitters. We've gotten to this place where we like to categorize and list and compartmentalize. What I always tell my students is in the early modern period, there was a real sense that whoever died with the most stuff won. So if you were keeping a kind of book full of really useful stuff, you chuck everything in it. So it it really is a kind of the more the merrier philosophy. And I think in some ways, you really kind of see that in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where you've got this kind of whole world of magical creatures at play. That's a very early modern way of thinking. They weren't worried about, well, wait a minute, would Tatiana and Puck be in the same place? For them, it was like, let's just... Put as many different things as we can into one spot, see what happens.
1: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Uh, getting back to this idea of your characters being this kind of mishmash of different supernatural creatures, vampires, witches they're also demons in in your trilogy. and the supernatural, is very hierarchical. They don't mix. And at least according to the witches, they were they were the top of the order. The demons are like these perpetual teenagers, you say, you write. They're the criminal underclass. And vampires are lower than cats and dogs. And actually, humans are kind of not even in the order. They're just like irrelevant, except that they persecute the others. Um, so in many ways, I think your books are more about or as much about Otherness and just fearing what you don't know or what you don't understand in, in other creatures as they are about anything else. So, how did that evolve? Was that the idea from the begin- beginning for you, or, or did it slowly take shape? I think that
2: was really my concern at the beginning, looking at that book display in Puerto Vallarta, was again the note. I mean, I know people who are weeping because their child is marrying somebody of a different race. And I looked at that wall full of vampires and humans, you know, and like there's no friction in their universe. And I just thought, really? I don't think that would happen if you came home and said, hi, mom, I have a vampire boyfriend. Can he come to dinner? Because we have very complicated, conflicted ideas about difference. And I thought that vampires, witches and demons gave us really good monsters to play with. I, there were all kinds of signs in 2008 that there was beginning to be a kind of sense of constriction.
1: Despite gender fluidity and this sense that maybe we're moving finally toward toward a, a post-gendered world. Right. But in 2008, we
2: were locked in Prop 8 here in California.
1: Exactly. So we
2: were in, involved in a major ballot initiative over whether two people of the same sex should be able to get married. Never mind a vampire and a human. So I just couldn't square all that in my brain.
1: That's really interesting because there is, of course, this, a whole feminist history uh, about mm-hmm. witches uh, as an anti-woman movement. So what do you think of that interpretation as a, as a historian, given this broader analysis or, or viewpoint that we're, we're talking about, about otherness? Is it simplistic to see the persecution of witches as, as gendered?
2: I don't think it's that I think there's truth in it, but I don't think that explains the whole story. And so, you know, as a historian, the explanations that are the most satisfying and hold up the best are the ones that are multi-causal. The plain fact is there were women who were practicing something that looked like witchcraft an awful long time. The Middle Ages was not exactly feminist, and yet there were not witch hunts. So the question I always ask my students, whether it's why did the scientific revolution happen in the early modern period? Why did Shakespeare, what, what was going on to make theater So popular in the early modern moment. Why were there witch hunts? All of these things are happening together. There's something called the monstrous regiment of women. Most major countries in Western Europe were being run by women. Which is very threatening. Which is very threatening. So the issue is not, I think, that it's anti-women. I think the issue is that the power of women was a source of great anxiety in the period. And what makes you anxious, has a power over you. And then that becomes something that demands a kind of a response to come to terms with it. So I like to think of it as as not so much anti as that, you know, again, that this is, women became this place for people to park their anxieties, and then they parked their anxieties on witches and scapegoated them. And there were a lot of other others in the early modern period that they were doing the same thing to. It's just that The witches um, was a major, you know, form of of this persecution.
1: Well, one of those others, other, uh, other, others are demons, and Mm -hmm. and they're interesting in your novels. Uh, You make them these poignant creatures. Despite their repulsiveness, I think, uh, as you said, you describe them in the book as uh, eternal teenagers, but they have no parentage or heritage and they're just born haphazardly to humans, unlike the vampires who are made and have kind of um, vampire mothers or mm-hmm, fathers mm-hmm. And, and the witches are born into witch families. Um so these demons in your books they yearn to find this this lost manuscript because it would finally explain their origin and where they come from and and their identity really and it becomes the search for identity. What did people in Shakespeare's time, since that is our Yeah. is our focus in this podcast. Um what did they believe about demons and how does that figure into your thinking or phenomenology of these creatures in your fiction? It's a great question. In the early modern
2: period, they were dealing with completely Christianized concepts of the demon, which always makes me a bit sad for them, because demons, as I spell them, D-A-E-M-O-N, were the Greek predecessor of the Roman concept of genius, a spirit of a place or your guiding spirit.
1: It's like a soul.
2: It's like Mm. a soul. That's what a demon was. They kind of were there helping you make decisions, trying to lead you to the right path.
1: Although in the Christian uh, mythos, it becomes this uh, fallen angel.
2: Right. In the yeah. Christi- and, and even more so, it becomes a voice that might be taking you away from God. You are not supposed to be listening to other little demons. Kind of think of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faust, right? Mm-hmm. The little angel and the demon sitting on the shoulder. So I kind of wanted to rehabilitate them back to that Greek and Roman origins before they became... The naughty, dangerous voice that the Christians didn't want you to listen to if you were a recently converted pagan.
1: Huh. Well, when you're then doing something like that or, or you're making up personality traits mm-hmm. for, for these characters, do you take pains to make them believable as humans for your reader? Or, or do you just think like, as you were saying, well, let's go with this. Anything goes.
2: Right. So, as a historian of science, um, especially one of the early modern period, you know I am always really, really struck with how a world is built, and there there are rules. There's an organizational system. You asked a question about hierarchy. There's a hierarchy.
0: Very. There's strict. an order. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So essentially, I probably am familiar with the same kind of worldview ideas that Shakespeare had, and it was about order hierarchy, place for everything, everything in its place, distinctions, connections, and that's the kind of world that I built. At the same time, in the early modern period, in Shakespeare's day, they believed absolutely in these supernatural and preternatural creatures. And so again, I just thought, what if those early modern people were right, and there is this invisible world that we aren't seeing, why as a human being, what might we not see him? Well, I was in Old Town Pasadena just the other day, and there was a homeless man sitting on the street with his dog. Not a single person looked at him as they went by. And I thought, well, that's how humans do it. A human being's superpower is denial. A demon's superpower is creativity. A witch's superpower is that they have control over the elements. A vampire's superpower is is longevity. And then you just sort of start building that world oh, that in a explains very early there, modern
1: way. There are these really interesting moments where the supernatural creatures are kind of talking to each other and saying, oh, I can't believe the humans can't see that this is a whole room full of witches or a whole oh. gathering of vampires because denial. We're very good at that.
2: We're very good at it. And we're also very good at not seeing things that make us uncomfortable. When you walk into a cocktail party and you immediately gravitate to all the people like you, we
1: do this all the time. Often unconsciously. Often unconsciously. Well uh Diana, your your main character, she is a uh historian, mm-hmm. and of course you're a historian, and um historically there was a controversy in post Elizabethan mm-hmm. times about how to view witchcraft, uh if you were living at that time, whether whether you could just adapt whatever knowledge or recipes these so called witches had and and use them for medicinal purposes. Or there were some, and King James was one who who really viewed it as magic, Absolutely. actual magic. He but, believed
2: he was a victim that's of witchcraft, right. yeah, among other things, yeah.
1: He really he did believe that. So, So how do you as a historian understand why some people chose one camp and not the other?
2: I think that after many, many centuries of sort of coexisting happily with the notion that there were witches around, Once the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, got published in the 15th century by these two inquisitors, and it really focused on the idea of the witch as somebody who did maleficio, who did evil deeds, over a period of 100 years, it became something that people could really focus on and say, oh no, my cow has died. It's that woman down the lane. It gave a kind of focus to people's attention. With that increased focus, inevitably, as it's discussed, come the voices of doubt. This is ridiculous. She's just an old woman who lives down the lane. Then there were the people who said, absolutely, she is like King James and had all kinds of theological, philosophical, historical kind of evidence to put there. And then there were also this sort of very interesting middle of the road crew who thought something was going on, but wasn't weren't quite sure what it was, and thought maybe there's a medical reason. And over the next hundred years, what we see is kind of the witch craze uh, really kind of take off, the hunts take
1: over. The witch hunts.
2: Yes, the witch hunts. And then we kind of descend into the last of the hunts in 1692 in Salem. And so it's this very interesting sort of 200-year moment almost where it becomes, again, that kind of fashion to talk about witches and what their role is. There's anxiety. There's changing worldviews. There's a lot of instability, religiously, politically. All of this is why I mean it's sort of a multi-causal way of thinking about the witches. It's not enough to say it was just anti-women or misogynistic. There's something that's like a perfect storm of ingredients that makes it all happen. And... And I think that with that kind of attention, the whole worldview begins to crumble under the pressure, right? There's so many cases, so many accusations, so much new data being put in the system. You're bound to get the, this is all made, this is, nothing is happening. The extremes. Right. Polarity. The the skepticism, the true believers, and the people in the middle who kind of can't decide which way to go.
1: I don't think I'm the only one who's listening to you talk about this and, and equating it to our modern day. Situation. I mean, at that time, science and magic were indistinguishable, really, right? And now, it makes me question what a historian of your period makes of the moment that we're in now politically, uh, when many people they don't trust scientific evidence about things like global climate change, and they treat science more like myth making, or religion, or politics, rather than fact based knowledge. We're in a weirdly
2: early modern moment. We're in a weirdly Shakespearean moment, I think, where people are having all of the things they thought they knew about the world and how it operated upended. What happens historically in a moment like that is people look for somebody to blame. They begin to fear things they don't understand. They fear people who aren't like them, all of which we see. And it it makes us somebody who's a historian. Of the 16th century say, what can we learn from this earlier moment about what happens when we go out and exterminate a group of people, as we did people accused of witchcraft, because we're uncomfortable? And every time I turn on the news, I think, there, there we are, we're doing it here, we're doing it here. And there's both a sense of frustration and a sense of missed opportunity, because seriously, there is so much to be learned from other moments. We are not in a unique moment, even if it feels like that to us, right? That we think, where did this come from? How could this be happening? This has happened over and over and over again, um, when the world turns upside down and inside out. And it's a sobering thought to know that we're bound to we're, even if we know history, we seem bound to repeat it. I think uh, smarter minds than mine will have to figure out why human beings have to keep trying to learn this lesson over
1: and over. But we haven't done it yet. I have so much enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. We, uh, and you'll have to come back because there are two other books. I would love to come to back. Two about. more books.
2: I know. Next one's actually <laughs> And in a TV series. Yes. And a TV series. It's it's a lot of fun. It's. Um, Amazing just to think of how seeing an airport wall in Puerto Vallarta, having just finished a book on Elizabethan London, can somehow alchemically combine to make the All Souls trilogy. It's been a it's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Well,
0: thanks again. Thanks. Dr. Deborah Harkness is a teaching professor of history at the University of Southern California. She is the author of John Dee's Conversations with Angels and The Jewel House elizabethan london and the scientific revolution deb is also author of the all souls trilogy which began with a discovery of witches originally published by viking press for penguin books in 2011. the tv version of a discovery of witches premiered in the u.s on january 17, 2019. you can stream it on sundance tv or Shudder, rent it on britbox on amazon prime Or beginning April 7th, watch it on AMC and BBC America. Deb was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Excellent Witchcraft, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Sean Corey Campbell and Bianca Ramirez at KPCC Public Radio in Pasadena, California. You've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited for a long time, now's the time for you to review it. If you do, on whatever podcast platform you get this podcast on, you will be helping others get access to this great content. I hope you will, thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll come see us at the Folger Shakespeare Library. We're on Capitol Hill. Come and see a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face-to-face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you, and thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director Michael Whitmore.